Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Callum Chain and Luke Zadkovich from Zyla Floyd Zadkovich. Uh, today we've got a, a special guest with us, uh, Lucy Noble, one of uh, the associates at ZFZ. Welcome, Lucy. Welcome, Callum. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great to have you back on. How are you, Callum? I'm good. We've got a case that's firmly in Lucy's sweet spot. NORs under voyage charter parties, and uh, it's right in right in that mix of uh, that good shipping contractual dispute. And there's a lot of interesting facts in this one. That's true. A master exercising his discretion to say that a trip is unsafe or or a proposed birthing is unsafe, and how that interacts with uh, with a charter party. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, well, let me let me open up with the. The case um, citation and, and the names of the parties involved. Um, we are in the London Circuit Commercial Court um, in England, and this is a matter that was dealt with under the Shorter Trials Scheme. Um, recent decision handed down on the 12th of August, uh, 2022. Um, we had His Honour Judge Bird sitting as a judge of the court. Uh, and the claimant was CMP Max 3 Limited, and the defendant was uh, Petroleus del Norte. Um, involved the vessel, the, the MT Stena Primorsk. Um, so it's all about a voyage charter back in 2019. Uh, it was good to see a couple of... Um, the the juniors that we know well on this case, um, I thought, Callum, you know, we're usually reading decisions which are led by QCs, um, whereas this one was, you know, fought out by a couple of the, the leading junior barristers that, that are, are well known in, in the market. And as with a previous decision where there were some juniors, the, the judge made a point of thanking the thanking counsel for concise submissions in dealing with the claim. You know, unsurprisingly, it seems like both of them did a very good job getting their points across. Um, and as you say, two, two, two counsel we know well that are obviously real stars. Yeah, and also I liked what came through in the decision was there was a real um, appreciation of the quantum involved. It was obviously dealt with as a, a shorter trials case um, there was agreement on facts, and always see that. But there was agreement on on certain facts. There seemed to be large, a, a large deal of agreement on what the key issue was. Um, and I think the it came through in the decision that the court really appreciated the efficiency by which um, counsel and, and the parties involved had had approached the matter. And the experts on either side both seemed to have approached yes, pretty yes. sensibly. You're right. You're right. Well. So, um, flip a coin for who's going to um, open up on uh, the facts of this one and get us get us started. Lucy, would you like to lead off? I would love to. Okay, so we good. have um, a voyage charter party here, as as Callum has previously mentioned. Um, we have cargo loaded on board the vessel, um, and charterers direct the vessel to go to the discharge port. The vessel arrives at anchorage at the discharge port goes into the berth and then 12 minutes later heads back out to Anchorage and then stays out of out at Anchorage for a little while um, before eventually coming in and discharging. And um, charterers are arguing that this kind of 
the the discretion or the um, decision made by the master to head back out to the anchorage and then come back in again is something which is either a breach of the charterer's orders under the charter party or is something which stops laytime and demurrage running um, under the charter party. And so as it is kind of borne out in the uh, expert evidence to a large extent, the reason that the master did leave the berth was due to the tides at the port and it was his safety concerns that the vessel would um, get stuck or get damaged or that it was just unsafe for the vessel to stay there because of the slow discharge rate that the terminal, terminal was advertising. And so I guess the, the, the key question there was, or the key factual question, was whether the master's uh, decision to leave the berth and then not return to the berth um, until a later point in time, whether that was... Um, whether the safety issue was a valid concern and how that kind of cuts across all the other obligations in the charter party if it was a valid concern. There, there, are, there are kind of two occasions where the master didn't follow the, char- the charterer's orders. The first was he went in and, as you say, he then, he then left 12 minutes later um, and would come on to the reasons why he left. But then secondly, the, the charterer said, you know, actually now you have to go back. And he said, no, I'm not going back in. I can't. I can't go back in with uh, with the with the full load, um, and it's a really interesting one because he was, you know, the, the the vessel's draft was right on the threshold for what could have what they could have managed to um, to sail in and out of the berth. At the, the the berth obviously has a has a depth at which they say this is you know safe for you to come in and out, and the 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 tide affects that as the tide comes in and out. Obviously, the, there's there's a certain amount of uh, latitude that you have before you hit the bottom of. Uh, of the birth and it was it was right on the on the fringe of what could could be acceptable here yeah exactly exactly and it it all all kind of came down to um the owner's guidelines on the under keel clearance the ukc policy um and i thought i, I must admit i don't think i have turned my mind to the UKC um, so closely on many matters before. Maybe you guys have. Um, it's just a function of the cases. Yeah. And so I, I thought actually it's, it's a – I'd highly recommend this case to, um, to any owners out there, crew or masters particularly, but also the way that owners interact with, um, with masters and how to – Kind of set up the communications between vessel and onshore um, operators of the ship um, around this issue of underkeel clearance, but it it kind of goes beyond that as well. There's a, there's a really interesting dimension to this around the the paramount of paramounts of the um, the master's decisions as to safety, which we know very well that courts will regularly defer to masters on questions of safety. There really needs to be compelling evidence against what a master has decided to do when it comes to questions of safety for the court to to rule otherwise. Um, And there was no question when the the, um, master decided to come off first time that that was the right thing to do and and the parties all accepted that it was more the question of um as you say whether it was the right thing 
not to come back at a certain point in time. And it was all about the the interaction between the owners and the masters over the, the UKC policy and whether that was reasonable under that policy. It was almost like it was too close to the uh, to the draft. There was, it, there was too much kind of uncertainty in there to, to go ahead. And they, they after discussion, again, another key point, the, the owners and the masters talked about it. They decided not to go in and, and the court was looking at whether that was a reasonable decision. They, they would have gone against the guideline for the under uh, keel clearance, which was 10%, the maximum of 10% of the depth. Um, let me find the exact wording. Within port limits, fairways, berths, etc., ten percent of the deepest navigational draft. So the berth has this deepest, has this uh, kind of set figure for its deepest navigational berth, and the under under keel clearance says you have to have ten percent of that in addition um, in order to in order to carry on berthing. And the experts both said, if you're if you're going into a berth with less space than you're required by your UKC then that basically takes away the master's ability to exercise his own discretion. When you're in that realm, you need to go and ask for a particular waiver, you know, that, that you're allowed to you could go back to the owners, have a discussion with the owners, say, are you happy for me to go in here? You know, we've, we've looked at the tide, we've looked at the rate of discharge, etc. And the other factor that comes into this is as you're discharging, the ship becomes lighter, obviously. So the amount of space that you need becomes less. And this was, this was the issue the first time that they went into the berth because he went in and I think there was an advertised rate of discharge of 10,000 um, metric tons an hour, I believe. Sorry, 10,000 barrels an hour. Um, and pretty much on arrival, the, the port said, actually, no, sorry, it's only, it's only 5,000 an hour. I'm not sure if those figures are exactly right, but the, the port basically said, once, once birth, the port said, actually, you, you're not going to be able to discharge as, as, as fast as we previously said. So the master did a very quick look at, uh, you know, how that would affect the, the, the discharging, considered the tide and said, no, we need to leave now because now we still have the clearance to do so. So, you know, before, before any hose was, was, was attached, he was out. Um, and then with a bit more, go on, Lucy. I was just going to say, I think it was like an, a combination of all of those factors that made it quite interesting for me that these are all the factors that the master is having to consider when making these 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 calls on safety. It's not just the tide. It's not just um, the weather. It's not just accounting for potential delays, which might happen during the discharge. Like there's all these kind of variables that need to be taken into account, which I think was, was quite interesting to read about. Um, when looking at the master's decision in hindsight, well, yes, maybe they could have done so safely, but it was just too great of a risk to bear to come back to the port um, with, with all those factors in play. It's one of those cases where it felt as though the, the, the court was always going to be influenced by the evidence of the master, um, perhaps more than the evidence of the experts. You know, if the, if the master could cogently explain why he had legitimate concerns about about birthing, then it's always going to be an uphill battle for a charterer to say, despite those reasonable concerns, we still think that, you know, you should have done it. Um, and that seems to be what happened here. I think that's right. What, what came through for me in, in the judgment in summarizing the evidence was that there was methodology behind the decisions. There, was a, there were calculations made, as you were saying, Lucy, there were a number of factors at play. Those various factors were being considered 
there's the the data from them was being put into the calculations. There was then dialogue between um, master and owners. There was reference to the policy. There was an actual policy in place. Um, the, the the court noted that UKC policies are uh, widely used, and that um, I thought it was an interesting comment to say they're part of the charter as well. Um, I, I don't think I had quite kind of got my head around that previously, so I thought that was a really interesting point. There was a clause, that, you know, the clause said that the information, the information set out and supplied is complete and correct and an integral part of this charter. And that, I assume, was a clause that the charterers would want to see in the charter party because they, they, they would be saying, you know, we want you to effectively give us a warranty of the, of the ship's performance based on these questions. But actually, in this case, it kind of twisted back around and it became very helpful to the owner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah like I, I see big that. big protection, yeah. Should we touch on some of the clauses um, uh, in the charter? Because I, I think the, it's worth painting the, the picture on where delays, you know, rest and fall um, in this one. And it's, so we're, we're looking at a Shell Voice 6 um, amended, um, which was the, the charter issue here. And the, the judges obviously pulled out the key provisions. The, I think the really key ones for me were clause 3.2, which says charterers shall adhere, to, sorry, owners shall adhere to charterers' voyage instructions as long as such orders are considered safe by the master of the ship. Um, so that, you know, that's really the, the big shield that the owners are going to use here. They say the orders weren't considered safe by the master of the ship. And there we go. And then also clause four, which says that charters shall exercise due diligence to order the vessel only to ports and berths, which is safe for the vessel and where the vessel will always be afloat. And that one, we can probably come to it slightly later on, but that there was a counterclaim by charterers for lighterage costs, because ultimately what happened here was the, the vessel did not, berth until some of the cargo had come off it. They had they had to lighter the vessel um, before it could berth. And the charter said, if if you're wrong, owners, on the on the kind of on, on your claim, and if you were not entitled to um, sail away from the berth and, re- and reject our instructions to to berth, then those lighterage costs are for your account. Um, and secondly, there was a there was a provision in the charter party for half half rate demurrage and there was half rate demurrage in this charter if there was lighterage caused by something that was no fault of either party and i think that that clause there that says that you know charters will exercise due diligence to order the vessel only to ports and berths which are safe for the vessel and where the vessel will always be afloat i think that counted against them when they were looking at uh, when you know when the charters were trying to claim that the demurrage rate should only be half demurrage because they you know they 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 did in fact order the vessel to a place where the uh, the judge found that it couldn't necessarily safely lie afloat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think you're right. There are various other clauses as well referenced, but those two clauses, clause three point two and clause four, they set up this scenario quite rightly where um, safety is paramount. Um, that's you know in the discretion of the master, considered safe by the master of the ship. Um, so uh, owners only need to follow the voyage instructions in that instance. Um, and also there's due diligence obligation on the charters, as you say, to only order the vessel to ports and berths, which is safe for the vessel where the vessel will always be afloat. Um, 
that kind of sets up this scenario where if a vessel like here has to go to a um, a berth where there's a risk or a substantial risk or you know an appreciable risk that the vessel may touch bottom on at some points in the tide, then the vessel's not always going to be afloat. And that's not a situation where um, uh, there, there's lightering or there's a need for lightering because of no fault of any party. Um, that is very much in the scenario of, well, the, the ship should not be in the position of potentially running afloat. And, um, you know, the, the question here was, did the, did the master operate, uh, did, did the master make the decision and the calculations and the process reasonably? Did it go through this process to establish, well, was there a safety concern here? Um, and ultimately the decision was yes, uh, that the, um, the master did um, make a sound decision on that. And as I said before, the consultation with the owners um, was was critical to this, that there was a policy, it was talked about, the policy was followed, it was reasonable to follow the policy. Um, and, yeah, so when you when you then pull that within the provi those provisions, you can see why it, um, why it went against charters. And I think what the, what the charters were, were trying to, to argue was that there, there was a kind of plan put together that would have allowed the vessel to have, if even if it you know, was under the, the UKC, then it would only have been under for a very small period of time and it would have been, you know, it would have been safe and they could have given a waiver. Um, and I think from the charter's perspective, there is some argument to say, well, the, the berth has an advertised depth and we're not at that depth. And on top of that, we've also got um, some tide. And on top of that, we're also discharging. And as we discharge, we are going to you know, have, have more, um, more room. So I can kind of see why charters were a bit frustrated here. They, you know, their, their view will have been, well, we had, there was actually space at this berth and, and I mean, you could have gone into it. Um, but yeah, obviously that analysis doesn't take you very far when you look at the need for a bit of extra, extra room, the, you know, the 10% threshold. And particularly, I think what, what really killed them a little bit in this case was that they tried, they, they tried to birth the first time. They were told that the dis discharge rate was actually much lower than they expected it to be. And the master had very, you know, very clearly expressed um, concerns. And in witness evidence, this, seemed to, this point seemed to be made very well. And it seemed to land with the judge that, you know, why would it be any different the next day? I've come in on the promise of a quick discharge and you've told me that it's going to take longer. And then tomorrow you're asking me to come back and you're saying, don't worry, we'll do it at 10,000 barrels an hour. Why would you suddenly be able to do it faster than you were able to do it yesterday? And that seemed, to, that seemed to weigh in its decision. Yeah, exactly. What's changed? And they didn't, I don't think they really got a straight answer on that question either. When they did ask what's changed, there wasn't really a, a clear reason for the, for the change in discharge rate. I, and I think you're right. I think you're right, Callum and, and Lucy, in that that did sway the judge. I think that was a, a relevant factor in the mix. Um, there wasn't any compelling evidence in, as to what had changed. Had they done something? Had they rearranged things ashore? Um, and... You know, where it's again, it's in this discretionary kind of um, realm where the master's trying to make a decision, um, taking into account many factors, that being one of them. Just going back to one of those points that we that we spoke about before, what I thought was really interesting here is that they didn't give um, 
charter is any benefit of hindsight here. It was the information that the master knew at the time based on the information they had. And I think that's why this kind of change between discharge rates was so relevant at the time, because that was the the information or contain contemporaneous evidence at the time. That's all he had to go off. And and it's one thing to to sit back with the benefit of hindsight and say, oh yes, it was safe, but charters aren't given that benefit here. I wasn't certain exactly how that played with the contract, but I, my, my kind of reading between the lines on it is that Clause 3.2, which says owners shall adhere to charter's voyage instructions as long as such orders are considered safe by the master of the ship, that was kind of taken to mean that ultimately, as long as the master is exercising this this kind of safety refusal for genuine reasons that were in his mind at the time and were reasonably founded, then that's enough. And it, uh, the one thing I perhaps would have liked from this judgment is a slightly clearer expression of, of how the judge was reading Clause 3.2, and perhaps it was just you know um, too obvious to need to be said. But I think that was the, probably how it was coming across, which is why hindsight didn't then play into the decision. Yeah, it's interesting. We're, having done a number of these... Um, with you, Callum, and Lucy, before. Um, number two. How, <laughs> number two, yeah, exactly. Um, how different it is reading um, decision of first instance versus a, an appellant decision um, where the, the judge's role is very much a fact finder, of course, applying the law. Um, and you will get, you will at first instance also get quite analytical judgments as well. I'm not suggesting that we don't see them, but... It, it, it is it is marked that um, you know a decision like this is very much coming to a conclusion on what the judge thinks um, uh, is the right factual decision applying the law and um, whereas in the appellant decisions it's much more about the law obviously and, um, and there's a lot of, a lot of analysis in those decisions. I, I didn't, as you were describing that, I thought, yeah, I, I did. That didn't jump out at me when I first read it because it's a you know decision of first instance. If that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's a, it's a very good point, and I think I don't know if it's also a feature of this kind of shorter trial scheme, but it was a, a very um, it was a very easily readable decision and the judgment you know the judgment, i think the judgment runs to about nine pages including the, the front sheet so it's you know it's a very well condensed um summation of all the different facts on a pretty complex factual case um you know i can imagine a case with all these different facts running to a sort of 20 30 page judgment in other in other circumstances and i wonder if that is is just part of this kind of shorter trial scheme you know you get you get a punchier um a punchier decision just you know with with all the real salient facts yeah, yeah, that may well be the case. Did, did we have any other comments on this part of the judgment or should we jump over to the free critique um, aspect of it? Let's get into it. All right, Lucy, what's going on here? What are we talking about? This is quite a technical argument, I think, that, that Charter has tried to run um, to try and um, get get out of their liability for um, paying demurrage for the delays. And so essentially the, the argument was that on the terms of the charter party, um, if free critique isn't granted um, before the notice of readiness is tendered or within six hours after the, not- the notice of readiness is tendered, then the uh, lay time and demarriage doesn't run effectively. So the, N- the NOR is invalid. And in in this case, uh, free critique wasn't expressly granted. I think I've got that right. They don't have any record of the of the terminal actually 
uh, or the port actually saying, yes, uh, you're, you're okay to come in, free critique is granted, but I guess the argument was that they, they acted at all times as if free critique had been granted. And so there was never kind of – the vessel was never prevented from coming in because of it, but there was just no express sign-off, um, which I think was quite an interesting argument in this case to try and stop um, the, the valid tendering of the notice of readiness on, on this basis. I kind of have sympathy with this argument. If the NOR requires requires free critique and and it's not, there is no evidence of free critique being granted. I mean, if there's no no kind of expressed documentary evidence of it being granted as it transpired, there was significant evidence that it had been granted um, because everything was everything was happening as though it had been. Um, but worth a shot to to run a, you know an argument saying that the NOR should the NOR requirements should be strictly applied. I, I thought this a bit with. With you on this, Lucy, I thought it was a neat little argument and and, and quite technical. Um, and and the judge kind of looked at it in two ways. There was the, the formal question, if you like, of whether it was customary to grant free critique. Um, and then secondly, there was this question of the mechanism of the grant um, and and how um, how it you know the basically the authorities here proceeded or acted as though uh, free critique had been granted. And so it, it kind of got into it. This wasn't a main part of the judgment at all, but it, it, it is interesting because we do see this type of issue come up. It's the kind of, you know, client picks up the phone and say, I've got a, got a ship, got an NOR issue. What do you think? Um, I, I don't want a, an legal advice on it. Just tell me your thoughts in, you know, 10 words or less type question. Um and we get those kinds of questions all the time, as you guys know. Uh, but this is the type of question that falls into that category. And, and you can, I think, you know, looking at that, the key paragraph or two on this is quite instructive, um, I, I found. I thought, okay, this is, a, this is a neat way of looking at it. Yeah, I agree. Because what you have here is a situation where what's actually happening doesn't marry up with um, what, what documents the charter requires. And this is this is all dealt with pretty quickly by the judge and very sensibly, I would say. He it, basically the judge says it looks as though free critique has been free critique has been granted, and you know either there was no formal mechanism for the grant of free critique, or alternatively there was just a, a system of free critique by default. But either way, that doesn't you know there's there's no free critique issue here preventing the NOR from being valid. It's not like you had to go and do something. You weren't allowed to berth and, and the ship wasn't ready. And therefore you have no, no, um, you know, you don't get, you don't get the NOR validity. It, it basically, everyone was proceeding on the basis that free critique was granted. And there's, there's no reason to say the NOR was invalid just because there wasn't a document saying here, you know, here is our, here is our documentary evidence of free critique being granted. But I think I think that's still an interesting conclusion to come to when the clause does say you need free critique to be granted before NOR can run. And I think that going kind of those those cases that Luke was talking about, when you're checking like the shopping list of when when time is to start, free critique is always one of the things to check um, to, to to see if time has even started. So to have a judgment here which kind of confirms that that might not always be the case is is quite interesting. It is. I think it's. I think this is actually quite helpful to uh, to owners in general because there is that situation where you need something on the shopping list that you can't get, and this kind of says, "Well, okay, we can be a little bit practical about that." Or something on the shopping list that you don't ordinarily get, 
because I think that the the importance or the I don't know I can feel like it's kind of faded away a little bit, which is clear clear from from this decision and that it wasn't given out by the port and that's not really in owner's control. So then the the kind of conclusion of the case ultimately was the master was acting reasonably, genuine concerns, and therefore the the claim for the claim for demurrage was a, was a good one. Demurrage continued to run. There was no there was no reason to stop demurrage um, because owners hadn't done anything wrong. There was no fault on owner's side. Yeah, and the, all the lightering costs fell on charters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the counterclaim. So charters. I don't know if we mentioned this at the start. Sorry, I can't remember. But um, the charters had a counterclaim for lightering uh, all the costs related to lightering if. If they were to get up, and if this was uh, ultimately viewed as had had owners operated unreasonably or not within the contract, and they were in breach, then um, then it was agreed that the counterclaim would would win out and they'd recover the the lightering costs, and it wouldn't have, um, had to pay demurrage. But that's not what transpired. So yeah, and this uh, this argument around the half rate was also tossed as well as we kind of alluded to earlier that. This wasn't a situation where it was just a um, you know outside of the control of anyone. This was a a situation where the vessel was asked to call it a berth, where it it wouldn't always remain afloat, even if there was some uncertainty as to whether it would touch bottom or not. We're talking about a, a range or a tolerance in there, and in those situations, the the analysis is not so much about would the vessel have touched bottom or not. You know, it's not a black and white question like that. It's more about the process. Was the policy reasonable? Was it applied properly? Was it did it form part of the contract? Um, was there dialogue, communication, and were the you know was the decision ultimately a reasonable one? And I think beyond that was was where the orders of charterers orders where they had you know undertaken proper due diligence to make sure that the that the berth was safe. And the judge says, you know, I don't need to make a finding on that on that obligation. But if I if I was to, then I would find that you hadn't exercised due diligence. So in that situation, I think when charters then try and argue, it should only be half it should only be half rate because this was really outside everyone's hands. The judge is saying, no, it was pretty firmly in your hands to exercise due diligence on the birth, and you didn't. The master did, and the master found it was unsafe. So. Um, Tough luck, full demerge. Great. Well, look, Lucy, you're welcome back anytime to talk about free critique, to talk oh, about UKC policies, uh, to talk about demurrage. No, look, we, we're happy to talk about other things too, Lucy. It's always a pleasure having demarage you on. Demurrage only. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they happen pretty frequently, so I might have to share that around. Yeah, I was going to say, we can't be too far away from the... Um, Eternal Bliss Supreme Court case. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it can. I think that was that should be at some point in the not too distant future. So that'll be a demarrage case to get you back for. Very much looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that decision. Although there may there may be a um, bit of a battle as to who gets on to talk about the Eternal Bliss because I know it's a it's a favourite of many in the firm. Um, great. Okay. Well, look. Thank you, listeners, for for staying with us till the end. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion today. Um, I know I very much did, and it's great to have have you on, Lucy. Always, always good uh, calendar catch up and talk about the latest shipping case or commercial case or or what have you case um, that comes our way. We've got some really uh, exciting guests coming up. I will say um, a, a little plug. I won't yet reveal names, but we've got some external guests 
coming on to the podcast in the coming weeks. Uh, so keep an eye out. And as you will see, and not just here, um, we are now putting this po- podcast out on YouTube with some some video. It's still early days in our videoing of podcasts, so please do forgive any kind of, you know, looking in the wrong direction type stuff, um, but it's all, all fun and games. Thanks for staying with us, and um, we're, we're grateful that you, you listen in. Okay, take care.